Happy Mid-Autumn Festival. Welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Friday Lecture Series Online Edition. My name is Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for our book talk on Anyan Su Chi, Polit uh, Politician, Prisoner, Parent by Wendy Law Yon, who is joining us all the way from Paris, France uh, today. Uh, this book was recently published in August 2023 by HarperCollins and is available online for purchase for $12.99. The link is in the chat. Uh, please um, purchase a copy afterwards and support Wendy. Uh, joining Wendy today in conversation after her main presentation will be Russell Liang, editor of the Institute's academic journal, CUNY Forum, uh, Asian American and Asian Studies. Uh, Wendy was actually a contributor to volume eight of our journal uh, that covered the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 uh, from her perspective in France. Uh, Wendy Law Yon is a Burmese American novelist whose books have been translated into many languages and taught in literature, history, and Asian studies courses in universities throughout Europe and the United States. Uh, international awards for her writing include a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Award for Creative Writing, a Harvard Foundation Award for International Literary Arts and Intercultural Relations, a, a David T. K. Wong Creative Writing Fellowship from the University of uh, East Anglia, uh, and a Frederick Duramat Guest Professorship of World Literature at the University of Bern. And uh, Anyan Su Chi, politician, prisoner parent, is uh, one of uh, her many new books and the most recent one. And before Wendy begins, please welcome uh, Russell Leong, editor of CUNY Forum. All right, a few words. Uh, Wendy Law Yong is truly a writer's writer and a writer for the people. She's made a unique mark on the literature of the world. In my view, she's brought literature alive out of the ivory tower, using literature as a golden parasol for life, to paraphrase the title of her own memoir. Uh, this is the, the Aung San Suu Kyi book and Golden Parasol. Wendy, like the internationally known writers, Kazu Ishiguro and Arundhati Roy in some of her work, deals with the residuals of British, Western, and Japanese colonialism, its effects on families, on generations, on personal and social struggles for liberation. Her latest book, Aung San Suu Kyi, Politician, Prisoner Parent, is no exception. So, Wendy, we'll chat later. Take it from here. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Anthony. First thing I want to say is what a joy it is to be here talking to you because the um, I'm very partial to the work of AAARI because it was during the COVID lockdown that uh, when I, like everybody else, didn't know which end was up and what to think of anything, that you invited me to write a piece reflecting on, in a way, on literature during COVID times. And... It was such a clarifying um, experience for me, and I really, um, really appreciated that. So when I was invited again this first time, it just seemed like a natural progression because we're no longer in COVID uh, lockdown, but there are so many other crises that have reared their ugly heads. And I um, today I'm talking about um, my most recent book, and I just thought I would give a little bit of a background on how it came about. 
um, people ask me, what inspired you to write this book? And I, I always have to correct them and say, it, it wasn't inspiration. Um, inspiration is something completely different. I was asked to write this book. So it was a commission in a way. And I was asked by um, a publisher. Actually, I was asked to write it as a, a long essay on Aung San Suu Kyi. And um, this was at a time, a very um, kind of unsettling time that occurred a few months after the 2021 coup in Burma. So Aung San Suu Kyi had been jailed for a number of months. The country was in complete turmoil. Um, the civil disobedience movement and all of the uh, strikes had uh, were still in process. There had been a huge uh, mass demonstration and, and a, a very brutal crackdown. Um, and on top of everything, um, the collapse of the healthcare system, the collapse of the economy, um, there was this uh, third wave of COVID, which um, just seemed um, like the final straw. So I, um, when I was asked to write a piece on Aung San Suu Kyi, it gave me pause a little bit because I thought, well, she's a little bit, um, has taken the back seat at the moment because so much else was happening. And in the first wave of the student, pro oh, I call them students, but they were student age, young Gen Z protesters. There was, um, there was an early um, angry response. Um, it wasn't, it's, it's not a, it's not a pervasive kind of um, uh, response in Burma because Aung San Suu Kyi is still very much adulated and in fact worshipped. But among these young people, some of whom um, you know, I talked to, they would say, she's finished. That's over with. We are not, we're going now on a new path. We want nothing more to do with the military or any kind of dialogue, any kind of devil's back. This is it. We're going our own way. That's it. And, you know, I would, I would get um, messages saying, she's dead. You know, she killed our country and now, you know, she's finished. So I thought um, it was an odd time to be writing about her because quite apart from the fact that she, her, she was in jail now, um, there was another element to that, which is that prior to jail, she had lost a lot of her luster in the eyes of the West, especially because she had been seen to be an apologist for the, the military regime at the International Court of Justice at The Hague, um, when she basically defended the ethnic cleansing uh, genocide against the Rohingya. So she was in a peculiar sort of shadow when this, um, I was asked this. And I, um, I thought, well, yes, but an essay. So um, I, 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 um, I welcome the thought because often um, I also, writing for me, writing nonfiction, that is, is actually a way of um, thinking. 
In other words, I often don't know what I think about something until I see what I've written about it. So for me, it was, I thought, well, this is, would be a good exercise because she's a very complicated, complex character. And it's very difficult, I think, for most people, unless they're um, seeing it in a very two-dimensional two way, to have a sense of, um, you know, a strong sense of how they feel about her. So I thought, well, I will uh, see how other people feel about her. This was not a book to, to, to clarify my own thoughts, but to see, you know, what did people think about her? So I said, fine. And um, I was given a very short deadline and um, a, um, a word limit, which was very good because um, that's always helpful. And so I thought, fine, I'll do it. But then when I um, sort of wrote them this little precy of what the book was going to be about, um, they said, well, you know, actually, why don't we publish it as a book? So I thought, okay, fine, but it didn't change the word concept. That's fine, book, essay, whatever. So I wrote it, but then um, the funny thing is that um, there is a certain, you know, among the many um, reasons why the Burmese often say, how unlucky are we? Um, the Burma as a burning issue in the world news was suddenly overtaken by events in the, the Ukraine invasion, the um, evacuation of Kabul, and again, there's zero interest in Burma anymore, people. And so I guess for those reasons, my publishers just held off publishing it. And I thought, well, uh, when, when would be a good time, really, to publish it? So it went on and on. And then um, I think suddenly um, she'd had this closed trial, this, um, her case that was, um, um, you know, had gone on for a long time and it was, the jury was still out. But when the final um, sentencing was delivered, I thought, well, that seemed a good moment. Now we know how many years they say they're going to keep her in jail. So, um, and at the same, so I, I called my publishers and I said, look, are you going to publish the book? And if you are, don't you think it's a good time? And they said, oh, yes, yes. Um, uh, can you tie it to something else? <laughs> and I said, well, she happens to be turning 78 in you know, a few months. So, that's how the book was timed. It came out. Um, but it's the, 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 the problem with um, writing about uh, a subject that is not only, um, you know, in, in limbo, as it were, but, um, but also is so enigmatic in many ways, has... Um, you know, there's a couple of roadblocks. One is that she, um, I had to fix, I had to fix on some, I thought I had to have a focus to write about this and not just a biography because biography, you know, the number of biographies written about her is, is uh, I don't know, like 27 or something at last count. And, um, 
And I thought, well, who needs another biography? But, um, but she was, um, she was someone who, um, the, 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 the qualifier that was most common used with her is icon, 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 icon. You know, she had been the icon of democracy, icon of, you know, icon of a human rights um, uh, defender, icon, this and that. And everybody always attached that to her name. And um, for me, that was a little bit um, daunting because um, I started to think, well, what is an icon really? And I started to think about that. You know, how did icons become, how did icons ha happen? And then, um, so I started to look into the history of icons and, um, and then I, you know, when you do this random research, there are these little nuggets that pop out of nowhere. And I saw that it was, there was a funny little, very arcane debate that was going on in the, um, the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox scholarly community about icons. And the debate was whether the term writing an icon was valid, because usually it's called painting an icon. But apparently in America, they came up with this term. And so there was this big question about how do you write an icon? I mean, you paint an icon. I mean, you paint something that represents words. You don't write an icon. And I thought, that's it. I am writing an icon. And I started to think then, you know, how do you do that? And in the end, icons are, they're, they're representations. They're hollow anyway, because I, you know, I think with Buddhist iconography too, the icon represents deities, let's say, who are simply, you know, products of our imagination. So, and icons are hollow, as are actually our, our uh, you know, our, our visions. So in the end, it's a way to, icons are just a way to reflect on the nature of reality. And so, I mean, all these totally, in a way, irrelevant things I talk, thought about because I didn't quite know how to write a profile. And biography, writing biography, has never interested me, which was why my first one, which uh, Golden Parasol, was um, such an exercise in um, all kinds of things. Um, and again, with that, I would not have written it had it not been a kind of ask from my father um, ages ago. Anyway, to come back to this now, I thought, okay, I will write this. And I thought, but really, how does one write a, um, you know, a profile? And then I read um, a, uh, I read some, I read a book by a woman who had been the obituary writer for the Times, the London Times. And it was wonderful because she starts out with, in 19... 89 or whatever, I wrote a biography of a fish. <laughs> and I started to read it, and it was wonderful because it was a fish in a lake 
that had been caught and released and caught and released again and again. And this this woman said she learned so much because she never knew that before the subject that there were fish who had, you know, you could identify as having been caught and released several times. So I thought, okay, someone can write a biography of fish, I can write a biography. I'm not trying to draw parallels just to say that these were some of the the models that um, um, I thought about. And um, so all of this is by way of saying um, it was not a, a very straightforward um, exercise for me to write this very small book. But then, you know, nothing is a straightforward exercise for me. So, um, so Russell, I would love for you to, um, you know, to, to quiz me on, on any subject that comes to mind, um, because um, there's so much more I could say about this, but I think probably um, our listeners will want to know about other aspects of the book. Wendy, I mean, what you just said about Icon is, <clears throat> was amazing because actually fish, as you know, you, you talked about the fish being uh, captured and released, but of course the fish is one of the auspicious symbols in, in Buddhism and uh, as well. And then the other thing, when you talked about icons being empty, but one of the most revered Buddhist sutras, I'm sure it's probably even read in Burma, is the Heart Sutra. There's a very famous line called form and emptiness are equal. And so basically what appears uh, empty actually, and what appears uh, with form, they're basically <clears throat> equivalent. But <clears throat> I'm wondering whether you could actually read a very interesting passage about an iconic kind of <laughs> image you found in a, was it a market, a digital print? And I think that would kind of even shed more light on what you were talking about in terms of icons, uh, iconography, uh, and more. Yes, I, I think you're referring to the uh, the photograph that I... Yes, I yes. Yes, I, I'll, I'll read a little bit. Um, so, <clears throat> two months after Aung San Suu Kyi's release from prison in 2010, I was wandering the streets of Panzodan Books Book District in Rangoon, now Yangon, when I came upon a curious artifact. Panzodan um, is the Myanmar's equivalent of the Bukinese of Paris or London's Charing Cross Road back in the day. On this occasion, the book district was awash with fresh merchandise on display tables, newsstands, and footstools, on plastic ground sheets and wooden pallets lining the streets where colorful stacks of magazines, newspapers, journals, and instant books, all being churned out at speed now that the authorities had eased up on censorship. And on a great many covers was the image of a smiling, waving, radiant Aung San Suu Kyi, always with flowers in her hair. Here she was, photographed arm in arm with U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, whose momentous visit had taken place only a week earlier. And there she was, and there and there, replicated ad infinitum, not just on the front pages of papers, but on keychains, pendants, lockets, 
calendars, fans, wallets. The thing that caused me to do a double take, however, was a laminated color print of Aung San Suu Kyi and her father, General Aung San. Not one of the familiar black and white snapshots of the daughter as a toddler in her father's arms in the year of his assassination. <coughs> no, in this portrait, an artifact I kept myself for not acquiring, but I still see so clearly in my mind's eye. Father and daughter are seated side by side. The only odd thing about this family portrait is that General Ansan is 32, the age he was assassinated, and Ansan Suji is 66, her actual age at the time. A feat of Photoshop splicing that positions her as the mother and her eternally youthful father as the son. Creepy as it seemed to me at the time, this surreal inversion of parentage, so to speak, was just part of the mad rush to re rehabilitate Aung San Suu Kyi by highlighting her exalted pedigree through digital leisure demand. It wasn't so long ago that in the Aung San family portraits sanctioned for public consumption, mother and father were shown with their two small sons, but with the tiny Aung San Suu Kyi cradled in her mother's arms, excised from the frame altogether. Just two months earlier, she had appeared at the top of the famous iron gate behind which she had been secluded for some time, or for some 15 years, when the cheering crowds had finished singing the national anthem and laughing and crying, a woman shouted out, she is our mother, she is our mother, do me, do me. Amei su, amei su, another voice proclaimed, mother su, mother su. Those cries marked a metamorphosis that had taken place while no one was looking in the hothouse of prolonged captivity. 20 years earlier, Aung San Suu Kyi had burst upon the political scene as the daughter of the nation's uncontested hero, General Aung San, and had ended up in isolation soon thereafter. Now she had reemerged from her cocoon as mother of her father's nation. So that's the, that's the, yeah, that, uh, <laughs> the chrysalis. <laughs> yeah, that's really uh, stunning. I mean, you had in your book, you argue, you were talking about the, not the cult, but the importance of uh, genealogy in Burmese society, like between father, daughter and father, and uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's ascendance from daughter to mother of the nation. In terms of, you know, just uh, Burmese uh, politics as a whole, does that, does the genealogy, uh, how important is it? I think it's, 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 Genealogy is, um, I think, important to all societies who are, which are, um, who place great importance on bloodlines. The, you know, the blood and soil mythology, all of those things in, you know, in, in countries like Japan, it's, it's all about genealogy, pedigree. And, um, and, you know, the burn, Burmese society is, um, 
um, contemporary Burmese society anyway, is extremely nationalistic, as as we all know. This idea of um, of pedigree and of of uh, tracing one's uh, forebears um, is is of course a very big thing in in Myanmar, but especially so, I think, um, more than class, um, you know, more than uh, social prestige. I think in in Aung Suu case, it's the fact that her father was sort of the father of Burmese independence. So um, he was the hero, he was the pater familius, um, and and I think to be the daughter of uh, Burma's hero and martyr is another great step up the ladder of this um, this pedigree um, chart. And um, um, it ex- I think it explains a lot of her her, her aura as and and her the way she is seen in Myanmar to this day because he's still the uncontested uh, father of uh, uh, modern Burma. I see. Um, now, you know, in the, in the West, of course, you know, we get very narrow kind of <clears throat> media reports, and a lot of the focus, of course, is on Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, house imprisonment for, what was it, 15 years? Yes. But, you know, in your book, I think, um, and, you know, usually in the West, they focus on the human rights aspects, <clears throat> prisoner of conscience, and so forth. But in your book, you also basically, uh, I think, beyond the uh, political narrative, you talk about uh, the metaphor and philosophy of Buddhism in terms of freedom, unity, mental cultivation, and so forth. And you draw kind of this linkage between practicing Buddhist monks, I believe, from the 1920s, as a context to show how Aung San Suu Kyi herself, her own personal and political philosophy, especially uh, during her house arrests, uh, was kind of developed. And I think you actually have a, a passage on page 31 about what she conveyed to, uh, uh, an, was it an American Buddhist monk, about yes. her ideas around uh meditation and so forth. And I'm wondering whether you could kind of talk about her uh, kind of own personal and kind of moral uh, resilience and resistance and how, and its connection with uh, Buddhism. Yes, I, I, uh, if I, if I may, I'll read a, a little passage on that, but, but I just want to say um, that when I was preparing for this and, uh, I, I didn't think it would be very um, useful to me to go back and read all the biographies of her, which I'd already done anyway, but I didn't even want to refresh. I, I simply, there were three biographies of hers, of her that I read, and they were three very good friends of mine. One was French, one was Swedish, and one was Burmese. And uh, they were all short biographies, and I... Um, uh, I read them, but the one book that I um, I went back to and which was so revealing to me was the series of 
of interviews that Alan Clements, this American Buddhist, um, did of Aung San Suu Kyi. For some reason, he managed to, um, you know, organize this series of, of interviews of her after she was released from prison the first time after her first arrest. This was in the 1990s, early 90s. And um, probably maybe because it was about Buddhism, she was, um, she was extremely, I thought, forthcoming. I've never seen such in-depth interviews. And what, what I thought was so interesting, of course, was the way um, he managed to tease out the uh, some of the underlying sort of political um, impulses or strands uh, through this, what was basically a conversation about her Buddhism. And I had not realized until I read all this, how um, central a part it was of her, well, her psyche. Because um, I, I think, like most people, who've read just Western accounts of her, have always, um, it, it's misleading. And I think people in the West can be forgiven for seeing Aung San Suu Kyi as very Westernized because of her, um, you know, her, she was married to an Englishman and she was also went to Oxford, lived in Oxford um, as the wife of a Don. She went to schools in um, English language schools, principally. Um, she was, um, you know, went to um, schools in Delhi, in India. And her English was, for that reason, very startling to a lot of people. She just seemed so, um, so articulate. And so um, she had a certain kind of um, uh, diction, uh, rather slightly sort of, school momish, but, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, um, I think people just saw her as very westernized. And then, um, much later, of course, these, this kind of strand was called into question. And for me, it was, um, I just was struck by how sincere and serious she was about, um, Buddhist practices. So, um, I will, um, read, if I may, this one passage, which talks about her, her sort of her religious um, side. What else can one do, asked Martin Luther King in his letter from Birmingham jail. What else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers. Aung San Suu Kyi could have told him what else one can do in jail, meditate. In 1995, not long after her release from her first six years under house arrest, Suu Kyi granted a series of interviews to Alan Clements, an American Buddhist who had been ordained a monk in Burma. A lot of our people meditate when they're in prison, she explained, partly because they have the time and partly because it's a very sensible thing to do. If you have no contact with the outside world and you can't do anything for it, then you do what you can do with the world inside you in order to bring it under proper control. 
put in such practical terms, the case for meditating in prison could as well be made for basket weaving. But it was yet another example of Suchi's facility for plain speech, an ability to make even the esoteric seem routine. Equally, she could speak of the spiritual dividends of imprisonment in more ecstatic terms, as in, political prisoners have known the most sublime moments of perfect communion with their highest ideals during periods when they were incarcerated in isolation, cut off from contact with all that was familiar and dear to them. The experience of prison as an opportunity for religious contemplation was not, of course, exclusive to Burmese prisoners. Prisons in colonial Indochina, for example, had served a similar political-spiritual purpose, as recounted by the historian David Marr. They forced a significant segment of the Vietnamese intelligentsia to withdraw from the world, endure privation, sort out their thoughts, and attempt to master the self and external reality. In this sense, prisons were not unlike Zen monasteries, except that the acolytes were not there by choice, and those in charge were not seen as teachers, but as the enemy. Asked by Alan Clements what Buddhist meditation meant to her, Suchi summed it up as a form of spiritual cultivation, a spiritual education and a purifying process. Purity of mind was what she had been striving for and was still striving for, she said. That and personal perfection. So that was very interesting to me. Um, uh, I mean, I had, you know, the, the, the perfection part, I was reminded of um, uh, a visit I made to Yangon not long after she was released. And um, contemporaries of mine who were all, you know, rather worthy um, sort of, um, you know, maidam, and but they'd all, they were, some of them were back in Yangon. And one of them, the first thing she said to me was, um, well, have you gone to see Miss Icon? Again, you know, she's called Icon even as a nickname. And I said, no. And she said, well, oh, why not? You know, you must, um, you must go and pay your respects to her because she said, I, she said, um, this, this woman who has now passed away, she said, I knew her very well because we were both Girl Scouts. She was number one and I was number two. And we were, we went to the best school in Yango. And after we established, uh, I and this woman, that yes, indeed, I had gone to an inferior school, <laughs> which was true. She um, said, one thing you must remember about uh, Miss Icon. Perfection is her goal. 
and she is perfectionist. She was as a Girl Scout. I was too perfect, perfectionist. Of course, I didn't say at the time that I have my doubts about people who call themselves perfectionists because perfectionism doesn't mean perfection. So, but anyway, I thought when I read this, I thought, well, she really does seriously cultivate perfection, whatever that means. Well, I mean, uh, I might want to say that uh, I think uh, you are quite the perfectionist uh, in your own uh, in your own writing, and because you know, I'm sure people also have questions. I wanted to just kind of. Uh, ask you uh, one more thing. Um, uh, I wanted you to share something uh, from Golden Parasol, your memoir, because the subtitle itself, I only realized it. I read this book first, and then I read Aung San Suu Kyi's book, and then I realized your subtitle in uh, A Daughter's Memoir of Burma also might also infer that you too, like Aung San Suu Kyi, are a daughter, not only of the nation, the newspaper founded by your father, but of the nation of Burma itself. Yeah. So it has a, this sort of play. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure whether it's intended or not. Yes. But yes. because your own uh, family background, uh, your own sort of birth and all, it, it just so much coincides with the uh, generation of Aung San Suu Kyi and that history, I wanted to, I think that basically readers really need to read both books in tandem because this book really gave me uh, a large context for understanding Burmese society, especially when you talked about the uh, varying uh, sort of ethnic and tribal loyalties and conflicts even before independence, which kind of persisted. So I'm wondering whether you could Talk about the connection of, say, your own uh, life and your father's, in, as recounted in Golden Parasol with, uh, with this book. Just uh, before we let others, uh, you know, ask questions and so forth. Well, th thank you for the plug, Russell. <laughs> Very kind. <laughs> but um, yes, uh, Golden Parasol, you know, there's so many um, parallels in the actual execution, to use a rather loaded word, of these two books for me, because one, um, they were both in a way, um, underlying it was a certain sense of duty, uh, obligation, I felt. And I, um, I, it's very much anti, you know, antithetical to, um, to, to the sort of thing I generally am, um, driven to write about because um, obligation for a writer is a terrible thing. It's, a, it's, it's death if you are writing the kind of literature that I'm interested in. Um, you shouldn't write things out of obligation. That's not, that's not what you should do. And I remember that when um, one of my novels came out, I got a phone call. This was the day before internet and people still talked on the phone. And I got a phone call from a very um, distinguished American academic who had worked uh, in Burma a lot. So he knew my father. He knew um, a lot about Burma. He was quite a serious scholar. 
And um, he he rang me to say, I just want to say I read your book. And of course, it's you know, said the usual things. Like, of course, it's very well written. But tell me, he said, I just, I, I just really want to know, is there nothing you can say, good you can say about your countrymen? <laughs> and um, and I thought, well, is it is it the the uh, obligation of a novelist to say good things about one's countrymen? Um, I, in fact, I don't really know what he was talking about, but you know, it's a novel, and um, and I was I was so shaken at the time, and that I was my back was up. And when he said, "Is there nothing you can good you can say about your countrymen?" My response was, no, sadly, there isn't. <laughs> because I did, you know, I just, I was, I was just so kind of uh, riled up about that. And then, of course, later on, I thought, the best writers in the world are, are um, savage about their countrymen. You know, what about Thomas ben Bernhard? What about Celine? These are writers, you know, who hated in their country. But... They're also the most celebrated. Anyway, the um, when when I took on um, this this book it, again, there is a because it's not my story and it's a story first of all first Ansansuji and my father. There's also um, very it, it was uh, you know crucial to me to get things right. So um, I, in writing about my father's time, I made very clear to say that this memoir, the memoir I wrote, was based on his memoir. Now, his memoir, which he gave me, you know, decades ago, to, and with the just kind of casual, look, you know, do with it what you will, and he wanted me to get it published. But, you know, I couldn't say to him that actually... You know, you're this famous journalist and you're a very good writer, but this book is not publishable because it was, it just, um, well, it, it, it was a sprawling, um, you know, um, history of his time. And it was filled with um, characters and events that would have had to be annotated to a fairly well in order, you know, to make it uh, comprehensible. And I just, I could not imagine that kind of en energy that it would take. And it went on and on and on. But, uh, that, I mean, my, my procrastination, but I explained in the book, but eventually when I got around to it, I was um, really grateful for having uh, plunged into it because it was uh, a very... Uh, extraordinary first-hand history of, um, you know, his times. And um, I, I remember that there's one section in his book about um, uh, his relationship with Aung San. And they were both, it, it really struck me, both of them, um, you know, returned to Burma about the same time. Aung San, after he'd gone and fought first with the Japanese and then against the Japanese um, to throw off the colonial yield. And my father 
had been actually, <clears throat> he'd been fighting um, with the, you know, he was with the OSS. And so when he came back to Burma, they met in this kind of um, very interesting series of um, encounters. And both were trying to build a nation. And I thought, excuse me, <coughs> I thought it was quite telling that my father called his his newspaper The Nation, because in many ways, I think he was as ambitious and as um, visionary as Ansan was in building a new country. They just went very different paths. Well, Ansan's life was cut short, and my father's life took a very dramatic series of um, turns after that. <clears throat> so I don't know if that's <laughs> that long-winded answer is uh, <laughs> is relevant to your question, Russ. Oh no, it was not just a plot. I actually meant it. I mean, uh, can you explain uh, the uh, comment that the proverb which the golden parasol comes from and say it to us? Uh, because yes. you know, for those yes. who are of us who are not Buddhists, uh, I think it's really relevant to to end this part of the conversation and let others uh, join in. So maybe you can uh, yes, um, it, it, uh, tell us about that. Right. It comes from a, a, a moment in my father's um, sort of second career, as it were, when after he'd been released, released from five years in jail, he immediately somehow finagled his way out of Burma, um, having schemed with the former... Prime Minister and some of the senior cabinet ministers of the former regime to go to Bangkok and set up a, um, a government in exile aimed at overthrowing the Nguyen government. So it was very much a, um, well, I think, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit uh, disrespectful, but I think it was in the end, it was a great adventure for them all. Of course, they had this um, great, you know, holy grail. They were seeking to restore democracy. But, I mean, imagine for a minute, these were, my father had always been a kind of a, um, you know, a very, you know, daring do was his, and chutzpah were his middle names. And he, I think there he was finally, you know, kind of um, trying to do something with all the different strands of resistance that had been going on in Myanmar for so long. All the ethnic minority leaders, the former prime minister, all these, you know, odds and sods. And he was trying to get them together um, to, um, you know, to to go back and take Rangoon. But it was, um, it, it was extremely unrealistic and over-optimistic um, mission. Uh, but and and of course he grew increasingly frustrated. So there was one moment um, when he was, um, you know, they were they were sort of um, um, doing their one of their planning sessions. So what if? When do we? You know, how do we go back? When do we? And this was all kind of um, like a, a cam campaign in a way. But who knew? Who was a very devout Buddhist, um, 
still retained that, you know, <laughs> that, um, what do you call it, that ethos. So at one point, he said to my father, wait a minute, wait a minute, Bolo, he called him Bolo, which is the Burmese word for, but law actually means hasty. So he shortened my father's word because my father was extremely impatient and, and Unu, of course, was a, you know, proper Buddhist. So he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Bolo. Are you telling me that if we go back to Rangoon, we're going to kill Nawin? <laughs> and uh, my father said, but the son of a bitch is the first person we're going to kill. <laughs> you know, so he, he was a, there was a kind of a res, resistance, sort of a pacifism that he was countering. And there were these young, uh, these young uh, Burmese kids who were, were sort of saying, but, you know, well, is it time to go yet? And it's a, and they were all quite um, uh, cautious. And my father said, look, do you remember the saying from one of the, you know, princes of the 18th century or something? And the, the saying goes, um, die, if we die, what do we have but the dirty, filthy earth? Live, and it's the golden parasol. The golden parasol, meaning, you know, it's the symbol of the... the um, um, the crowning of the jewels, the epitome of, um, well, the reaching nirvana, really. It's the, and it's a symbolic, uh, you know, parasol that's carried in, in, uh, religious uh, festivals and so on. And my father, uh, so he just said, die and it's the vile earth, you know, live and it's a golden parasol. So that's the, and that was his attitude to life, really. Thank you for uh, giving us this uh, parasol of uh, of literature and uh, writing tonight. And I'm going to have Anthony open up to all the others who I know are waiting for to ask other questions. Thank you, Russell. The time passed so fast. Thank you. Uh, yeah, if our attendees have a question, you can use the raise hand function. You can ask uh, Wendy it directly, or if uh, you're a tad shy, you can also type it in the Q&A box, and I'll read it aloud to Wendy. Uh, just to mention, uh, Russell and I actually did get to see Anya Suchi in real life uh, at Queen's College when she received an honorary award uh, from our former Congress member who represented the uh, the Queen's College area, and also, uh, yeah, this was back in 2012, uh, soon after her release. So, well, you, you know, you, you, several steps ahead of me then, because I have never actually, well, I have seen her, yes, but I've never had a personal contact with her. Well, uh, ah, we have a question. Uh, Ward Killer. I want to be able to you can hear me, can you? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um so um I enjoyed your your um remarks very much. I I have to ask the obvious question, which is does it make any sense more sense to you than it makes to us outsiders that Don Sansuti did feel that she should go to the International Court of Justice and defend the Burmese military 
um, you know, that has taken, as you noted, a great deal of the sheen off her uh, reputation as an icon in the rest of the world. Do you have an explanation? Can you make that somehow more intelligible to us outsiders? You know, I wish I could say um, I do, but um, I'm doubtful of my own insight. All I can say is there are several um, rather obvious interpretations. One is that um, as a very staunch nationalist, she did not um, like the idea of a country being um, uh, castigated and, uh, you know, under this kind of disgrace. But then you say, you know, it's one thing to kind of remain, um, to have this kind of circumspect silence about uh, an atrocity, but to actually go in a very showy kind of way to the ICJ, that actually does, um, you know, it you are being partial in that sense and to defend them. She didn't outright defend them, of course, but she denied that, um, you know, it was a, she, she, she said, oh, yes, the <laughs> mistakes had been made. No, she said that um, it was ethnic, uh, there, there might have been, uh, there might have been excesses, uh, but, you know, she was going, that, that um, it would be dealt with under the law, which was, again, another kind of, you know, contradiction, because all along she'd been saying that the one thing they did not have in Myanmar was the rule of law. And now she was saying, yes, but we, our legal system will take care of it. So um, there's that one interpretation. The other is that I've often wondered about this. This um, um, I don't know, but it seems to me that um, people don't... Um, I think people don't credit enough the the damage that incarceration does to one's you know cognitive um, abilities. I mean, incarceration for a long time you can be, of course, you know, you Osa Suchi had you know, reached or had been striving for perfection and in, uh, in mindfulness and all that. But it's pretty, um, I don't know how you can, um, I don't know how you can not feel that a person could be very, very out of it after being, um, you know, having this, this kind of, um, uh, long history of incarceration. And I just often wonder, does she really know what's going on? Are they keeping it from her? Um, you know, people who know her, who have talked to me said, she doesn't actually, you know, she has her own routine, but I'm not sure that it was the same that she in, 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 um, when she was under house arrest and they, they, um, um, you know, she she was allowed a radio and allowed books and so on. She talked about how she always kept, you know, kept um, uh, abreast of things. But once she was, um, you know, she, she she was in jail during the whole internet revolution. It was in in Myanmar when the digital world came to Myanmar. 
And when she came out, I remember the first time, she didn't even, she'd never seen, a, you know, a cell phone. I mean, a, 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 um, and so I don't know. I, I often thought, well, does she know? But then when I watched the, um, the ICJ, and I was, you know, I watched it again and again and again because I wanted to see if I could sort of decipher any, I thought, there were there were there was such a horrific testimony that you know even the most you know the the hard, the toughest stomach um it was hard to take and I watched her and I thought no is she going to crack now but um but she didn't and so I think that same iron spine that you know allowed her to. Uh, survive all those years of um, deprivation and uh, incarceration, maybe um, in, you know, under duress. I mean, it, it you know, she maintains that. Um, so I don't know. Um, I wonder also, of course, like everyone, um, maybe she doesn't think the Rohingya are Burmese. Um, you know, Burmese... George Orwell's written a wonderful short essay about nationalism. And the, the two traits about nationalism, one is that nationalists are, nationalism equates with power hunger. They have to be first. They have to be, that's, you know, we are, it's, it's, it's different from patriotism. Patriotism, you love your country and you, you hope everybody will love it too. But nationalism is, I think, it's a contest. You are, you know, you are trying to win a contest. And so there was this, um, you know, question I thought was, does she perhaps believe that uh, they are interlopers and they don't really belong? So, but not you know, not having spoken to her. Um, and even, even if I spoke to her, I doubt I could be, um, you know, I'd be enlightened. So these are all my rambling thoughts, Ward, about, um, you know, my <laughs> interpretation. I want to thank uh, Wendy for a wonderful discussion together with Russell. Uh, once again, you purchased uh, her book on HarperCollins' website. The talk link, uh, if you want to go afterwards, is available on her talk webpage. Uh, with that, uh, enjoy the rest of your Friday afternoon, uh, mid-autumn festival for us here in the States. And remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. And with that, uh, thank you very much, Wendy, for joining us all the way from uh, Paris. And uh... thank you, thank you so much. And, and uh, although I can't see you all, thank you very much for everyone uh, who tuned in, and uh, thank you very much for the support. And a special thank you to you both, Anthony and Russell. Oh, thank, thank, thank you, you thank you for uh, participating in the institute, both in the CUNY forum and also our lecture series. And thank you to Russell Leong for uh, moderating the conversation. Okay, have a good day, everybody. Bye-bye.